Welcome to The Disenfranchised, helping you to find a career path away from employment by exploring the franchise community. My name's Ed Pennell, and I'll be speaking with the entrepreneurs, experts, and leaders from across the franchise community, discovering their life stories and hearing their tips for success away from the typical nine to five grind. On this episode, I'm very pleased and proud to say that I have Carl Reader, the author of one of the best-selling books out there called Boss It. He's also the chairman of D&T Chartered Accountants, as well as holding many other titles, but I think those two are probably the most relevant for this conversation. Now, I know what you're thinking. A chartered accountant, that can't be that interesting a conversation, but Carl Reader is actually something else. He's a, a person who is creative at heart, and despite being in the accountancy world, has found a way to make that work for him. He's now a small business champion, helping people understand that business isn't difficult, using terminology that isn't business jargon that anybody can understand. I think in this conversation, I could have spoken to Carl for hours, in all honesty, and I felt privileged that he'd give me so much of his time. Um, So this episode is one of the longer ones, but I think there's so much interesting content in here in terms of the stories that... Carl shares with us his thoughts around um, not only franchising but building a business as well as the advice that he gives as well and backed up with some really interesting statistics so I'm certain you're going to love this one so um, here it goes and I'll catch you on the other side. So Carl Reader, welcome to the Disenfranchised, how are you doing today? Hey, Ed, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing amazingly well, given that we're in a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> what a great answer. And um, although we're in a worldwide pan- pandemic, it feels like the, the world is a little bit more positive at the moment, right? Is sun shining outside, we can go back into the pubs and uh, even get into some shops as well. So how, how are you finding it at the moment? Yeah, so it's been amazing. Look, I'm, a, I'm very much a people person. I thrive off of other people's energy. I thrive off of seeing people eyeball to eyeball rather than through a computer screen. So for me, it's been amazing. I've been out and about. I've um, eaten out in pub gardens and makeshift terraces for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, my waistline is showing it, mind you, Ed. You know, I'm <laughs> carrying a few extra pounds. But yeah, I'm loving the, um, I, I guess, the opening of the doors to normality. And um, I'm cautiously optimistic, but we really are at the um, final steps of um, the COVID situation that we've had for the last year. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I'm, I'm perhaps le- a little bit less optimistic. I think it might go on for a little bit longer, but I think um, if you're mentally prepared for it, you know, this kind of halfway house is still pretty good, right? So It is. It is. And look, I think, I think we're all aware that restrictions might be a way of life going forward for now. I think we, um, you know, we, none of us would be surprised, put it this way, if we're told in winter to wear face masks and rule of six and fam, you know, um, families only at tables and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't think any of us would um, even plan our business without catering in for that sensitivity that stuff might happen. Um, on the flip side, I think that it would be um, politically very damaging to go into another full lockdown. And look, with the vaccination programme and the sheer level of um, immunity that we've got across the country, which is continually improving, hopefully um, we can find a way to get ahead of that curve and adapt the vaccines for any future variants and so on. But I'm no expert on this stuff. (laughs) Perfect. Well, look, um, 
fingers crossed for that. And um, yeah, let, let's get kind of some of the questions going. Now, I, I know you're uh, a very busy man, so I appreciate you being on the, the show uh, with me today. Um, just to kind of rattle off, so I, I, was, I was doing a bit of research on yourself to find out, you know, what you've been doing. You're a, a podcast host, you're an amb- you've got an ambassador role, chair on the ACCA, uh, your board member for um, a, a kind of some youth charity or organization, best-selling author uh, with your book Bossit, director of free businesses, judge for various, the list keeps going on. It was too much for, for me to write down. But what I want to start with is what was your first job <laughs> after leaving education? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, actually, my first jobs were during education. Um, like most, um, I guess most kids with an upbringing that I had, you know, you help out. So I um, family had a business and the family trade was uh, locksmiths. So I used to help out in my dad's shop and also in the factory as well. Uh, so, you know, working hadn't been unusual to me and hadn't been unusual from about the age of nine, I would say. Wow. Um, you know, helping out in only simple things like sweeping up the shop floor and so on. Although, um, I probably shouldn't admit this because of health and safety, but you know, we're, we're long past it now. I did use angle grinders to shave off um, some fire damage on safes and things like that. Um, but yeah, I used, I used to help in their safe, at, at the safe manufacturing factory and um, in the shop. But my first job, you know, where I probably got a wage packet from someone I wasn't related to and excluding things like paper rounds and all that stuff. Um, I left school at... Um, the end of my 15th. So when I got my national insurance card, which I think comes to at 15 and three quarters, I left to start a YTS and I did a YTS apprenticeship in hairdressing. Now, I know most listeners are going to be far too young to know what a YTS is. It's a youth training scheme. Um, I don't think it was called YTS by the time I went on. I think it's called Modern Apprenticeship. Um, but I did that. And basically, it was slave labor. I was working for £29.75 per week. Um, again, sweeping up, sweeping up hair, mixing hair dye and so on, lasted all of about six weeks. Um, I, yeah, I think you can say I wasn't cut out for it, if you pardon the pun. Um, so that was my first employment, but then my first proper, proper employment where I actually um, you know, I had to put in a CV and not just charm the pants off the interview. I actually had to make some effort. Went back to school, did my GCSEs, and I applied for every job in the newspaper, and I had interviews at two accounting firms and in the army. I was, believe it or not, underweight for the army, so I wasn't allowed bearing, but it was an office job. But I got the um, interviews and got accepted at both accounting firms. So at the age of 16, that was my first proper job. Wow. So that's quite a contrast, really, between hairdressing and accounting, isn't it? Completely different <laughs> industries. So... What? Yeah, but Ed, Ed, this is the thing. I didn't have a clue what an accountant was, what an accountant did. I remember quite vividly. So I grew up in Southend on Sea in Essex. And I remember vividly the first interview that I had at an accounting firm was at a firm in Leon Sea. So there's one in Leon Sea and one in West Horndon, which is further towards London. I remember vividly going into the library in Leon Sea, which was about a two or three minute walk. Uh, and again, this shows my age. Bear in mind, back in 1997, there's no such thing really as the internet back then for consumers. Yeah. Um, and I was looking in the careers books to find out what an accountant was. And I, you know, I found out that there was a, such a thing as a chartered accountant. I found out what a set of accounts was. I, I didn't actually know what the job entailed, but I knew what the end results were insofar as career progression and what they do for businesses. And um, I just went along to the interviews and regurgitated it. But I had no idea 
um, about myself or the job. And I had no understanding that accountancy requires a high attention to detail. It requires being stuck in an office, adding up numbers, all of that stuff. Um, and actually, at my heart, I'm quite a creative person. I'm quite a big picture thinker. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, the glass is never half empty. It's, it's always overflowing. So accountancy and me wouldn't be a match made in heaven. And yeah. had I took any advice um, about what career I should have gone into, it wouldn't have been accountancy. It would have been more, you know, more down the hairdressing, perhaps advertising, marketing, PR kind of path. Um, but I'm really glad I didn't take that advice because actually I've managed to, um, I, I guess, create an okay path for myself through accountancy. So you mentioned at the beginning there that um, it, it, it gave you a path and a future that you, you thought was quite interesting to you. And, and I guess you weren't looking at the figures and the numbers part of it, but there was a, a path of progression. Was there something at that point in your mind that you were aiming towards or was it kind of just, I knew it was progression and that, that's good enough? You know what? It wasn't even progression. Um, this is embarrassing to say because I know people believe that I'm very driven and target focused and so on. But 16-year-old me was very different to 40-year-old me now. <laughs> and at 16, I had moved out of home. I, um, you know, my son was born at a very young age. And I, you know, I just needed income. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sell this story, but a lot of people will do. But, you know, they set out at the age of nine to be the next Alan Sugar. I didn't have a clue Alan Sugar was. I, I just wanted a job. I wanted income. I wanted, to be brutally honest, I wanted a job title that would impress people. But there was no real, um, there was no real target of, you know what, I'm going to be partnering this practice or I'm going to build my own practice or... I'm going to use this knowledge to become a finance director. And it was none of that. It was just, I need cash to pay the bills. Yeah, that's fair enough. And and do the things that you want to do, I guess, like uh, going out for meals or, or drinking or whatever it might have been. I guess that was part of it, right? Again, 16-year-old me was very different to 40-year-old me. Um, <laughs> I had quite a humble upbringing. And you know, restaurants really weren't a thing, to be honest. Um, yeah, I would say it was it was more about paying for rent to my bed set and uh, yeah, had, having food on the table more than anything else. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. So where did the, the, the career in accountancy lead you to then? What, what sort of level did you get to and, and what followed on from there? Yeah, sure. So um, what, what happened? So I was, I was at the first firm that I joined for five years. Um, it was a firm that was originally called R.A. Smith & Co. It became Clark Kitchen & Smith. And funny enough, I'm actually in contact with the managing partner there now quite regularly, and he attends events that I speak at, which is a, a real mind-blowing thing because he sent me an email to say that, you know, when I joined, I was a bit rough around the edges, but they knocked me into shape. And I think that was a perfect summary of the experience in that five years. I learned quite a bit. And what I learned during those five years, um, despite the fact that I'm probably one of the more prominent accountants in the country. Um, I learned that I didn't enjoy accountancy, but what I really did enjoy was speaking to business owners. But something about speaking to business owners, speaking to people who've gone and done it themselves, they've made that leap, they've diverted away from the societal norm, but really inspired me. And the extent of speaking to them in those first five years was um, in training them. So when I first entered accounting, again, 1997, the world feels like it was quite modern and up to date back in 1997 when I look back. However, 
Um, the reality was in an accounting firm, we were using um, manual paper records, businesses were keeping their records on paper. So I opted within about a year or two to stop doing my studying, um, which allowed me to get a small pay rise. When I say, when I say pay rise, look, I was starting on five and a half grand a year. They probably gave me a 500 good pay rise. You know, it really wasn't yeah. a big up back then. There's no such thing as minimum wage or any of that. But what it allowed me to do was to go out, see other business owners, and I would talk to them about how they could yeah, perhaps use a spreadsheet rather than using manual records and so on. So by doing that, I got to understand the psyche of a business owner, what motivates them and so on. And I moved to Swindon when I was about 20, 21, um, joined a firm that was then called Dennis and Turnbull. So that's the firm that I... Um, eventually performed the management buyout in and um, now serve as joint chairman. Um, and at DNT, I pretty much started with the intention of not doing any accounts. Now, they didn't know that when they took me on as an employee, but I was pretty clear that I was going to carve out my own role within accountancy rather than take the accountancy part. So I was fortunate that I got gifted yeah, about 20 to 25 martial arts schools to look after. And that was because we had done a VAT case around private tuition. We'd won it. It was a, a quite a big national case. Um, looked after them, travelled around the country, started seeing them. And, you know, they were people like me, Ed. I, you know, they were typically, you know, they're a few years older than me, but we were on the same wavelength. Again, they came from similar upbringings. It, yeah, it certainly wasn't old money corporate environments. You can imagine what a martial arts school's like. Yeah. Um, so I was on their wavelength, but, and there's one thing to be said about martial artists, and that is that they are massive, massive advocates of personal development. And I, what I found was I was speaking to them about the stuff they do. You know, I, I didn't spend time talking about their numbers because they're tiny little businesses, but I was speaking to them about what they do in their spare time and, you know, what training they do and all this. And they would talk about these crazy names, you know, people like Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and... Jim Rohn and Tony Robbins. And because I was traveling all over the country, I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm going to just listen to a couple of these audiobooks. So I did. And that kind of, um, I guess, opened up my eyes, but there was a world beyond the path that most people take. You know, most people leave school, go into A levels because they're told to, go to university because they're told to. Then they go on to um, get a career, they progress up that path. They're, they're bitterly unhappy, they buy a house, they then can't do anything else because they bought the house, and they're stuck on that path, and then retirement comes, they have to sell it all up, cash in their pension, and hope they've got enough money to get to the end. And I didn't want that path for myself, and it was only that personal development that showed me that there was a different path, and there's a different way of doing things. So anyway, um, where, where I got to an accountancy, I guess, in 2006, 2007, I was offered to buy into DNT, and to put that into context, I was at 25 to 26. People don't get made partners in accounting practices by that age, um, especially people who um, actively avoid work as much as they can and avoid doing the doing. But what I'd done was, you have these martial arts schools, I enjoyed speaking to them, and both refer their mates to me. I had a portfolio of about 200, 250 of them. Um, and in fact, that portfolio was um, probably the biggest individual portfolio in the firm. Uh, um, so I can understand why they wanted me to buy in and I wanted to buy in too because I didn't want other people to benefit from the graft I was putting in and I wanted to enjoy life a bit more as a business owner um, so we conducted the buyout that 
went on to about 2011. Then I started the process of extracting myself from the business. Um, that was a very long process, which finished in 2019. But along that journey, we became the um, leading franchise accountants in the country. So we started in franchise in 2004, and that was down to a martial arts school that was franchising. We thought it was a great idea. Actually, the business that was doing it was doing it very badly. But I went to the NEC in 2004 with them. I just kept turning up and I realized that there was some magic to be had from the input of an accounting firm into the relationship between franchisee and franchisor. Um, I didn't quite know what it was. And then when we stumbled across it, that's just when we scaled up. We started working with national brands, all of that stuff. And um, what led me to the point of being able to step away from DMT, which has now allowed me to do some of the other stuff, like being trustee of Young Enterprise, serving on BFA boards, writing the books and so on. It's really interesting because the the thing that I picked up on there was okay. So your your skills and what you actually wanted to do was talking to people and communicating and building these relationships. And at a point in your career, there you had, I guess, the opportunity to look into another industry. You didn't necessarily have to stick to accounting, but you went in there thinking, "I'm going to create my role." So, was there any point in time where you were thinking, "Actually, I want to look at another industry and try something different," where that creative side of me that that uh, side of me that's got personal skills you know able to build relationships wanted to try something different yeah I my um I, I guess my whole life is what people would call a portfolio career and it has been certainly since 2010 2011 possibly before um you know I've whilst I own an accounting firm whilst I chair the practitioner panel at the ATC8 I probably shouldn't say this I am the world's worst accountant um, I don't do the numbers. I never have done. I don't do my own tax returns. I don't do my own accounts. Um, I've got a team that can do that far better than me. Um, so I carved out opportunities for creativity and what I enjoy doing both within my own business, but also externally as well. So within my own business, what I did was, um, you know, my role naturally evolved from training to sales. Then I took on a sales team that so evolved to marketing, then built a marketing team. So I had that natural evolution of my role. And it's safe to say, but I, I don't think anyone in the business has ever seen me not together set up numbers or even own a calculator. It's just, yeah, that just isn't my bag. Um, it, in, in the same way, you know, a, um, I guess the chairman of Dulux has probably never picked up a paintbrush in his life. So um, there was the opportunity within the business, but also externally. Um, I wrote my first book, The Startup Coach, in 2014, released in 2015, I believe. And I'm, I might get these dates slightly wrong. I do apologize. Um, and that was part of, I, I guess, the fulfillment of wanting to, being quite blunt, stick two things up to my English teacher, who um, it, it, it was basically sounds absolutely hopeless. I was, um, you know, whilst I was fortunate enough to have a grammar school education, I certainly wasn't a typical grammar school kid, nor academic enough to be a grammar school kid. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in the subjects and um, spent more time out of school than in school, as you can imagine, by leaving early. Um, but I wanted just to prove to myself that it could be done, and it, and it was. I then used that as a catalyst for um, what some might say is a massive ego trip, what others might say is a personal branding exercise. Um, but building my, um, I guess, my public profile, um, I, and that's been a real outlet for my creativity so my talk I'm fortunate enough to um, get booked to speak internationally 
um, newspaper columns, broadcasting, all of that stuff has been a, a real opportunity to, um, I say, have a bit of creativity over my messaging and how I do it. But also, it's a way of getting my voice heard because there's, there's something here, Ed, which really frustrates me. And it's why I've got involved as a trustee of Young Enterprise. It's why I actively try to give back to the business community. And that is, and this will resonate with anyone with something like bringing to me, but you get told things like business isn't for people like us. Yeah. And there's this perception that business is only for people who've already made it. They've already got money. You know, they've got family money to get started or, um, you know, they've, they've got opportunities open to them, which others haven't. And I believe that actually everybody should have that opportunity to start or run a business should they want, and there shouldn't be any limitations in place. There's another side to that as well, which is there are then people who um, look to sell the dream, um, but ultimately a rip-off merchant, you know, get rich quick scheme, Bitcoin, all of this nonsense. And um, I, I think for me, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to communicate to the outside world that business isn't actually complicated. It's um, it's hard work. You know, don't you know, it's not it's not easy from a effort perspective, but it's certainly not difficult from an academic perspective. And yeah, that, that's been, I guess, my creative outlet with writing Bossit and the stuff that I do. Yeah, so you, you mentioned Bossit there, and um, it's, a, it's a book I have to admit I haven't read yet because I listen through audio, and you, you need to get it on there. You need to get it onto audiobooks. Um, it is. It is. Um, the publishers now, released it? it on the 1st of March. So unfortunately, due to COVID, um, because the publishing company that bought the rights to the audiobook are based in the US, not the UK. Um, due to COVID, I couldn't narrate because it had to be recorded with studios and so on. So it's actually um, narrated in an American voice, uh, but it is out on audiobook now. Awesome. That's my next book to read. I was looking for something. So thank you for that. Um, so, um, yeah, so I was reading, reading, um, you know, what it's about and, and what, what's involved in there. And the key thing that sort of struck out for me is that you're offering practical advice, but without all the business jargon, right? So in terms of the practical advice, is there anything that you think is the most important thing that anybody looking to build their own business or be self-employed should should look at what's the one one key bit of practical advice really really good, really good question because i wrote 260 odd pages on it um <laughs> i would say but you know first, first of all thank you for your comment because that was exactly what i tried to nail in the tone of the book um the problem with most business books as i see them whilst i've got a few of them behind me the reality for most business books is that they're either checklists or cheerleading and the checklist ones are full of management jargon and they're quite boring and dry and Unless you're super motivated to read it or your boss has told you to read it, you don't get around to reading it. And then you've got other books which are just motivational fluff and rah, rah, you can do it, girl boss, um, you know, yeah, yeah, all of this stuff. Actually, you need the combination of the two. You need the combination of the why and the how. Um, so that you've got the um, motivation to get started, but then you've actually got the practical, implementable tools to be able to do it. Now, what would I say to most business owners? What, what's the biggest tip? Look, there was a survey, and it was actually by a franchise called World Options, and the survey showed that 68% of people were either in business, were in the process of setting up their own business, or the biggest, by far the biggest chunk, they wanted to set up their own business, 68%. And the reality is that 
there's only one in seven of us who are self-employed at the moment. Um, I should just caveat that surveys for those who are aged between 18 to 55. 68% want a business. Now, for those 68%, that clearly means that, you know, if you walk into an office, you know, just walk into any office or any factory, and if you look left and you look right, one of those people that you look at is probably going to be unhappy with what they're doing. So I guess my advice would be, if you want to start a business and you've got that urge, just dip your toe in the water. And I don't necessarily mean get started trading, but just start educating yourself about business. Start understanding the reality of business, because it's not all about, you know, Instagram shops that people stood next to um, private jets. And, you know, it's not that influencer stuff. It's not Alan Sugar, Richard Branson and so on, who've made hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions and um, are, are far beyond us. The reality is, if we step outside our door and look at the other houses around us, one person in the house is very close to us is probably going to be self-employed or a business owner. And they're people just like us. So... I would say my one tip would be to take those first steps, start educating yourself, start understanding the world of business and the reality of business. But it's not easy. It's not this laptop lifestyle that everyone tells you. But actually, it's about being in control of your time, your income and your life. Uh, one of the quotes that I use in the book, Ed, which you won't have read because you haven't read it yet. No, but one yet. of the quotes is, um, that the best thing about being self-employed is that you get to choose which 18 hours per day you work. But the reality is you've got that choice and you can choose whether you knock off early on a Friday or if you want to work on a Sunday or whatever. You've got the choice of who you work for and how you do it. And ultimately, you've got the choice of how your boss treats you because you are your boss. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest barriers for people in starting their own business, like you say, there's plenty of people out there that want to do something. I think there's this idea that you have to have the next big idea, the next big product apple or virgin or whatever it is this new thing that you need to bring to the market that everyone's going to buy um when i guess and i know from my own experience that's not the reality but do you think there's any way that or anything that you can say to help people kind of get over that mindset of i need to have this big idea yeah get over it it's um, (laughs) it's an incorrect mindset as you say so it is something that often people think they need to reinvent the wheel. And that's because the press doesn't do business ownership many favours, Ed. Um, I, I think that you know, if you look at the press, who are the kind of people who make headlines, they're people who make innovations, they're people who raise big, big rounds of venture capital funding, they're the big corporates, you know, uh, they're the people who get press coverage. And the reality is 99.9% of the business population in the UK are what we call micro businesses they may be one to nine employees they um they just do what they do but with a bit more freedom and without an employment contract um so there's a big disconnect between public perception of business and the reality of business um you know i i, I certainly have sometimes explored things and felt that you know what we need to be game changing we need to be disruptive and so on you know first of all if you set out with the intention to be disruptive you're probably not going to be disruptive if you just set out with uh, the view of continual improvement, then you're going to be continually improving. But look, Apple didn't invent the personal computer. Apple didn't invent the MP3 player. Um, every feature that comes into an iPhone wasn't invented by Apple. Um, take that one step further, look at Google. So Google is seen as, I guess, being one of the um, kings of the startup world and a business that people look up to for innovation and inspiration. Well, you know what? They looked at what Yahoo, Lycos, out of Vista and the other search engines at that time were doing, 
And they just did it better. They did it quicker. Uh, they did more accurately and with a better set of results. Um, so most businesses that we perceive to be really innovative actually weren't innovative in the first place. They just took an existing idea and layered on a unique selling proposition that set themselves apart from the other businesses. So yeah, it is easy to um, fall into that trap of thinking that you have to do something completely new. But there's very little in this world that actually is completely new. Normally, it's iterative improvements, which then result in a disruption, but sometimes can be quite accidental. And I touch on my book in quite some detail about the different types of innovation as well. You know, there is um, disruptive innovation and then you've got breakthrough innovation and so on. And I, I talk through categorizing those because sometimes innovation is seen as having to be disruptive and disruptive only, but that's only yeah, probably a couple of percent of total innovation. Okay, so what's stopping people from 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 going out there? Do you think what's stopping people from uh, taking a look at another business and saying, "Yep, yeah, I can I can replicate this and, and and maybe do something for myself"? What's what's the main thing that stops people from doing it? Do you think? Sure. So I did a poll on my um, on one of my social media accounts, and we got about three hundred or so responses. So it's not statistically significant enough to hang our hat on it but it's a good bunch of people and the poll was split between um, lack of time lack of money lack of confidence lack of education and the two factors that came up um, highest were almost equally time and money the reality i believe is that when you dig a bit deeper it actually comes down to confidence and I believe that if I'd have had an opportunity to speak to each of the 300 respondents, um, I would have been able to define that it was actually, they didn't have confidence to apply for the right level of funding. Uh, they didn't have the right level of education about how to set up a business. So the time perception was, oh my God, I've got all this stuff to do. I don't know where to turn. So for me, whilst it goes against the poll that I ran, I believe it's confidence and education. Um, but the, the first layer and what people say is time and money. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, so you mentioned franchising a, a moment ago or a little while ago. Um, do you think that has a role to play or that that should be an option that's considered by by people thinking about or that, that want to start their own business? Absolutely. Right so look, I'm a massive, massive, massive advocate of franchising. Um, you know, my I, I guess my whole lifestyle that I enjoy now, my whole, whole livelihood has been built on franchising. Uh, my business is built on franchising. I proudly serve the BFA as committee members, board director, affiliate chairman, all that stuff. So um, I'm a massive supporter of franchising. And yes, I absolutely believe that it can, it can provide the perfect home, I believe. And this might be a bit controversial for some, but I, I'm going to say it anyway. I think it provides the perfect home for those who want to start a business but are lacking a bit of entrepreneurial confidence. And that's no bad thing. You know, I think one of the mistakes that we make in society nowadays is that we glamorize entrepreneurship. And we've seen that with the Dragon's Den of the Apprentice. We've seen it with, um, you know, if we look at Gymshark or Social Chain or other businesses that have done phenomenally well, you know, they're unicorns, basically. Um, and we glamorize that process of getting to the absolute peak of a mountain. But the reality of a unicorn is that they are a unicorn. They're very rare. And... But every you know, gym shark that makes it, I can guarantee you that there's probably 500,000 kids 
who've tried to create their own clothing brand and selling it on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and they might have sold one T-shirt to their brother. And that's it. So, you know, there is a hell of a lot of luck involved because it's certainly, you know, with all respect to Gymshark, it's not down to the quality of their gear or, um, you know, how nice the branding is or whatever. They just hit the right market, right time, and a bit of luck along the way as well. I'm sure that they had to tribute to that protest. So I think that for those of us, which makes up the vast majority of us who aren't and don't want to be out-and-out entrepreneurs, they don't want to be making billion-pound decisions every day, I think franchising provides a perfect home because it's the opportunity to buy into not only a proven brand and proven systems, but also a proven way of doing things in the community. Because one of the, I believe one of the strengths of franchising is that it allows you to be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. So you've got a big brother who's been there, seen it, done it. And yeah, they may be in the territory next door, or yeah, they might have been the original pilot franchise or whatever. You've got somebody that you can lean on and you can ask those questions of how do you do this? How do you deal with this situation? You've got the, um, the data and the support of the entire network, which franchisors should be feeding back to you to help you grow your business. And ultimately, it should be an investment that's worth far more than the MSF management service fee that you pay every month. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of franchising. I mean, look, I wrote a book on it as well. It's, um, it's something that I've lived and breathed for the last, um, probably, I mean, we've been in it since 2004, but I'd say it's only been the last 15 years that I've lived and breathed it. But um, that's, it. that's enough of a marriage to franchising to prove that I'm passionate about it, I guess. <laughs> I guess some of the barriers that people find though with franchising is obviously this kind of stigma that's out there in the in the world anyway, but also that that money piece as well. You know, that's the the main kind of reason that a lot of people are saying they don't want to start their own businesses because of time and money. But actually, um, and this is my my own personal thought. I I think I think franchising is almost outsourcing, right? So the outsourcing that set up and building of the business from the first instance, which yes, does cost cost money, but it's a more effective way to spend that money and to spend your time, right? So you're not going around making all those mistakes, you're following somebody else's model. Well, um, so you're saying outsourcing from a franchisee perspective. Yeah, I would, I would kind of agree. I mean, one of the things that I always look to do whenever I make a decision on spending money on business growth is I, um, I, I do a very quick um, cost benefit analysis on let's say it's marketing spend on marketing spend versus acquiring versus reinventing the wheel. You know, there's, um, there'll be a number of things. And ultimately with franchising, you need to weigh up the cost of going into a franchise. Can I replicate it myself and build as strong systems and as strong brand recognition, uh, protection and so on, and a support network around me for the cost of the franchise fee? No, I probably couldn't. Um, the problem you got is that price is often used as a barrier to any purchasing decision because people don't know what else to um, quantify it against. So, yeah, if you were to put yourself in the mindset of, um, Ed, let, let's say you're taking your kid for swimming lessons. The first thing you'll probably do, you know, you'll pick, you'll pick up a swimming pool and you pick up a phone and you say, hello, I want, want to put my you know, young girl into swimming lessons. Um, what's the first thing you'd ask? Yeah, uh, it, it'd be when it is the time for me, <laughs> what time it is, is it, but also the money. Is, yeah, when it is, how much it is, where are you? Because they're the only things that you know 
about that you can ask. They're the only questions that you can ask intelligently and be able to process the responses. Yeah. So you wouldn't pick up the phone and say, um, I, I, embarrassingly, I don't know the swimming qualifications, but that's exactly it. I wouldn't say, are you um, swimming association qualified? Um, you know, what, what kind of strokes do you train? Do you do this or do you do that? What kind of safety equipment? Because I don't know that well. And I don't know what I don't know. But what I do know is time, money, you know, pounds, shillings, and pence. It's an easy question to ask. And it's then an easy objection to raise. And, and that's the case with everything we buy. Um, we look for the easier questions to ask. And then if it's something we're passionate about, we get more in depth. So um, people do tend to use cost because it's a very simple metric to measure and um, to evaluate against. I think, and again, I might upset quite a few people here. I don't think tangible generally assert their value well enough. Um, and I will break that statement down in a couple of areas. I think um, that there is an improvement on sales process that could be had generally in the franchising industry about how franchisors um, actually sell the benefits of franchising as a whole. I think the industry as a whole doesn't sell the benefits of franchising enough to the wider population because we are still, you, you touched on the word stigma before, we're still up against that stigma, but um, in the UK at least compared to the US, franchising isn't seen as aspirational um, as it is perhaps in the US. You know, in the US, it's seen as something that's an achievement. Over here, it's, oh, you can't start your own business, you bought a franchise. And I don't think we've necessarily overcome that. And then the third thing is, quite frankly, we've got the, um, the fraudsters out there who use the word franchise to cover up a multi-level marketing operation, a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, yeah, we, we've got people who are selling so-called franchises for 500 quid and then they're never to be seen again. And there's no support, there's no infrastructure, uh, there's not much beyond a tightly worded contract and a credit card payment. So unfortunately, uh, the franchising world, and I encompass those who aren't franchises that use the word franchise, um, together with the industry and franchise or contribute to price being a challenge. I think that the challenge is there's, in my mind, there's two hats for, for a franchise or, and I think maybe you can kind of answer this for me, but they're very focused on building out that business, building out the brand and supporting the, 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 the network of franchisees they've got right. But it's quite a difficult thing to then do the same thing on the other side and educate the world on franchising when you're just one brand. So, um, Completely, completely. And it's, um, it's something that needs a wider, um, a wider shift and it's something that, you know, the franchising world has come along leaps and bounds over the last, um, actually over the last decade, I would say. Um, you know, certainly if I look at, you know, British Franchise Association, I look at when I'd go into a conference or a meeting back in 2010, 2011, compared to when I go in now, if there's a whole lot more diversity, there's new brands, there's new people, there's been growth in the numbers. So there has been movement, um, but it is a continual battle because individual brands will struggle to do it on their own. Um, communities of brands will typically still only enter and contribute based on the commercial return that they can get rather than the good of franchising as a whole. And um, yeah, ultimately, it, it needs to be done from a, um, I guess, an entire societal shift. And without regulation, I don't think now's the time to go into um, the pros and cons of regulation, but I can if you want. But without regulation, the challenge that we've got is that for um, every effort that's undertaken, there can always be a, um, 
an, a savvy internet marketer who promotes their franchise in inverted commas for 500 quid and um, people will wrap it up buy it and then get frustrated with franchising yeah it's um it's, it's frustrating isn't it because it doesn't seem to be a clear clear answer but for for people looking to maybe see if it is an option that's worth looking at for them franchising I mean, how how do they go about it? Is it just a case of Google franchise and see what pops up, or you know, what's what's their best route to understanding and educating themselves on on the franchising world? Yeah, good good good, good question because I think that there's a couple of ways I can answer this from a franchisor end to try and help franchisors reach them and um, based on buyer behaviour. Uh, but then there's also what I would advise franchisees to do. So I'm I'm going to go with the franchisee angle. Um, the first thing is to remember that franchise agreements last longer than most marriages. And it's a really uncomfortable thing to say, but you need to look at it as a franchise marriage. You know, five years extendable once to 10 years. How many marriages last 10 years nowadays? It's, um, I don't know what the divorce rates are, but there's quite a few that fail before 10 years. So I believe that you need to have that level of um, commitment, emotional buy-in as long as you would have to a romantic relationship. Um, so that straight away highlights the need for um, due diligence, research in the market, education, and so on. Um, clearly, I've got vested interest in my book, The Franchising Handbook, but do your education on franchising, get to understand what franchising is all about, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, but also to try and understand why the franchisor might be coming at things from a different way that you would be. You know, one of the problems with the entrepreneurial mind is that you know, entrepreneurs tend to have shiny object syndrome. And they will wonder why, you know, McDonald's doesn't allow them to sell spanners and hammers and so on um, to all the tradesmen who are coming to buy burgers. Um, the franchisee thinking, well, that'll make me more money. The franchisor is tying my hands, but franchisor is clearly worried about their brand. Likewise, why McDonald's won't want you to go and buy horse meat and putting that in a Big Mac for brand consistency and so on, and to check the overall um, network. So. Get an education on franchising as a whole, the restraints that you'll be under, the obligations that you'll be under. Get an emotional understanding that franchisor isn't going to do it all for you. Um, I think that too many buyers come to it uneducated and believe that because they've put down 15, 20 grand, they've got a loan for 30 grand, maybe leased a van or whatever, that work's just going to come to them. And those numbers on the projections are just going to come in. It doesn't. It's hard work. You've got to go out there. You still got to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, go out, do your work, and earn your cash. Um, you know, and that emotional appreciation of that is sometimes difficult. Make sure that you've got your family on board as well, because there's nothing worse than 12 months in when it's not going as well as you initially planned. And um, spoiler alert, it never goes as well as you initially planned. Um, you know, otherwise, if you weren't optimistic about it, you wouldn't be buying in the first place. But there's nothing worse than hearing I told you so. You want to make sure you've got a supportive family environment around you. And then do your due diligence. And whilst you know, I've got a vested interest to say about financial due diligence, what I'll actually say is you need to focus on uh, more intangible checks as well. Pick up the phone to existing franchisees. Ask them, would they do it again? Ask them for that on his feedback. Um, make sure that you check out all of the competitors within the same sector and also the same investment level. Weigh up things like what, what does the agreement consist? Has it been produced by a recognised franchise um, system in line with the code of ethics, all of this stuff. Um, you need to make sure that what you're buying into actually is fit for purpose, it's going to work for you, but that you as an individual are prepared to go into it with the effort and 
hard work that it's going to take to make it a success. Yes, good advice. I, I would add it's to that. It's a little bit more of a bit of advice there, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. At least one in there. Yeah, there's some something in there for people to take away. But um, I, I would I would add to that as well. So I, I personally think that if you go back to your, your marriage analogy there, um, you've got to actually get to know the people that are going to be supporting you through your business. In my mind, that's almost the most important thing because it's not going to be a smooth ride. It's not always going to be plain sailing like you say. There's going to be challenges and you know you've got to be able to trust that that person can help you get through those challenges um yeah without a doubt ed so i was involved in an initiative called the franchise gap which um, then moved on to being known as franchise europe which was a or still is it's a collaboration of european advisors and uh, we we help educate other markets about franchising in different nations and so on um and i was over in paris and um you, know, you have to excuse the translation that I'm going to use because it might not be an accurate translation. Um, I, I've got a very broad understanding of French, having worked um, with French brands and you know, attended the Paris Expo for the last 10 years. So I've got a broad understanding of the franchise words, um, but they were talking about um, you know a, a franchise model being made up of four things, but generally people only think of three of them. So ones, ones that people think about, it's the brand, you know, it's trademarked, it's protected and so on. It's the um, operational systems, it's the ops manual, um, the nuts and bolts of what you do, you know, you turn up at nine, you open the door, etc., and the franchise agreement. But the thing that's not often talked about is the way that we do things, and there's different cultures within brands and different ways that uh, the franchisor team works with the franchisees. So it's not been unknown for some brands to set up on what I would call the churn model. So their whole aim is to sell the license. And once the license is sold, they don't get a monkey's what happens after. They don't, they don't care if franchisees sink or swims. All they want is that initial franchise fee and maybe a bit of MSF. There are other networks who are extremely caring, loving. It's a community, it's a family, and they truly want success for their franchisees. So it's really important that you know, we're touching on the people. It's not just people. You need, to, you need to understand the vibe and the culture of the place that you're going into as well. Um, what the environment's like. And I think that can come about through speaking to existing franchisees as well. Um, and just making sure that they're the right fit for you. But ultimately, the way I see it is that an okay franchisor focuses on the MSF. They use that uh, as, you know, finger in the air, franchisees doing okay because they're turning over and I'm getting my money in revenue. The excellent franchisors focus on franchisee profitability cash sustainability and when they do that that's when you've got a truly strong brand not a brand that's just franchising because then you've got franchisees got the advocates for you and your recruitment is just made simple awesome thank you for that and so i want to go back to to you now and and, and why are you um passionate about helping others and educating others on becoming self-employed or looking into franchising what what kind of motivates you to share that that knowledge it's, it's my background, you know, where, um, you know, my mates are, you know, my mates from school who, um, well, you know, not from school, more than mates from out, I didn't really socialise too much with people within my school. I, I had my mates um, sort of around my area. Um, yeah, if I look at what they do and what their prospects were and what they've achieved, you know, their cabbies, their, um, you know, they've all got the burning desire to do something, you know, gardeners and so on. They, they've got a burning desire to do something. They just don't know how. They don't know. Um, yeah, they, 
they haven't got that confidence to make that further step. And I've seen it with my son as well. So my oldest son, Jordan, is so he's 22 now and he's been self-employed, um, but he was going through school. And at the age of 16, they told him to go on to A-levels. Now, Jordan is, so he's a lovely kid. He, you know, he's a great communicator and so on, but he's fixed too short pants at times. Yeah, he really is. And I know he's going to listen to it, but yeah, he's, um, <laughs> he's, he sometimes isn't the best academically and he falls, he falls apart at exams. Whereas I was, um, I guess I forgifted the gap and could carry myself through exams. He fell apart. Um, so he fell apart at these GCSEs. He got persuaded to do A-levels when really he should have jumped out and looked at doing his own thing. During A-levels, he was um, persuaded to go in for them. He got, I think he got one E and two ungraded at the uh, midway point, which I think is the AS level. Um, he was persuaded yeah. to stay on rather than to jump at that point. He ended up with an E and an F, I believe, um, which is not particularly great. But then, Ed, this is the mad thing. The education system were persuading him to go to university. Yeah. Okay. I know. I was in exactly what the same situation. Earth? I, I, but I left halfway through the AS earth? levels. <laughs> yeah, what on earth is our academic system yeah. doing propagating academia for people who are not cut out for academia? So um, for him, it was clear that he had a couple of choices. He could work in Sports Direct or um, you know, another retail kind of job where you know, it would be held between the legs and really didn't do too well at my A-levels, or he could do his own thing. And it took a hell of a lot of persuasion to let him know that actually he could become a voiceover artist. You know, he didn't even realise, not only did he not realise that he could be self-employed to his own being, but he also didn't realise that he could make his passion of podcasting into a into a career, into something that made him money. So there's a, there's a gaping hole in the academic system. There's a gaping hole in our society as well, in terms of um, particularly those from a, um, a more humble upbringing, but they don't necessarily see that this is an opportunity open to them. And I think there's even, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, if we look at um, private education and the paths that's expected there, there's a gaping hole there around entrepreneurialism as well. You know, I've, I've gone into universities and spoken to students on entrepreneurship courses, and the reality is they're not being groomed to start a startup because they wouldn't be sat in a lecture hall on a Saturday as part of their um, degree studies, they'll be out there doing it. Um, but they're being groomed to become investment analysis uh, analysts at merchant banks or whatever. So, as a society, we are, um, I believe, prohibiting entrepreneurship, perhaps inadvertently. Governmental policy is restricting it and isn't too friendly to the smaller businesses because it's focused on employment numbers. So, I'm, I'm just trying to do my little bit to. Um, both support, champion, and encourage um, tool business ownership and entrepreneurship. Uh, and that's why I do my lobbying and all of that sort of stuff. I think it's really ad admirable what you're doing because um, much much like your son, I was in that similar situation and, and I did just take a, you know, a job in um, something like Sports Direct. You know, I ended up putting up marquees for a living, which, you know, it's, it's okay if you're owning the business and, and building out from there. But for me, um, yeah, I was kind of not not wasting my time, but I was just focused on making some money and, and helping others. And it took me a while to get my career on track to where I actually I wanted and, and feel it should have been. But, um, you know, if I'd have been educating these, these other options out there and, you know, I was, I was living at home at the time, you know, to start building a business from podcasting, like you say, that that could have been massive for me at the time. So I, I think this it's really it. great look, what you're this, doing. 
this is the big problem with the academic system. They they focus very generally on stuff like um, you know share price valuations and corporate strategy and all this stuff. I remember doing that in my business studies exam, which um, I probably shouldn't admit. I think I've got a D in at GCSE. They've um, got all about what they don't teach you is that business is really simple. You find something for a fiver and sell it for a tenner. I mean, do it again and again and again and again and again. It's about unit level economics. It's about making sure that you're making a turn on every transaction. It's about making sure that you can't all the admin behind the scenes. But ultimately, it's about getting customers and keeping customers. Um, but the academic way of approaching business and business education, it doesn't encourage an enterprising mindset in that way, uh, which is why I've been involved um, so heavily in young enterprise. It doesn't encourage that kind of thinking that there is a different path to the societal norm. Instead, it focuses on a tick box exercise that ultimately leads to a qualification or to an exam paper, which leads to a qualification that's the equivalent of other GCSEs in difficulty. Business is actually simpler than that. Um, but that wouldn't work for academic integrity, unfortunately. Perfect. Look, I'm going to wrap up soon, but I've got a couple of questions that I wanted to um, to ask you about your, your career as a whole. So um, I'm wondering if there's sure. been any funny strange weird or interesting things that have happened in your career and um yeah i'm interested to see what the answer is loads loads <laughs> um wow so yeah um far too many um i'm trying to think of one that's work safe to call out um, I, i'll tell you what so when i was when i was out on the road as an accountant and i was building up to like the power team of the accountancy um, I, I had a client who had become like, like a mate, I guess, and he asked me to um, go and meet one of his friends who's run the business at the prospect. So I drove out there, there's a guy in Tamworth, and um, I pulled up. And um, at the time, you know, I was in a bit of a fake it to make it stage. I bought a BMW on HP that I couldn't afford, geese and all, so you know, I was really trying to play the part of looking 10 years older than I was to try and impress me prospect anyway. Um, I went inside to see this guy, and it was a bit, bit strange. Anyway, I sat on a sofa in this industrial unit. Uh, so, you know, if you imagine going in, it's like a pathway, there's a sofa sat there, a leather sofa sat down. Anyway, he comes out, and I start walking through, and I notice that there's these dodgy flyers around everywhere. And it was only when I sat down at his desk, and this place was inundated with pornography and that's the only word I've used inundated okay <laughs> and I understood that um the abbreviations of his business name actually stood for a term that might be a web domain um anyway I was talking to him and I I was like what do I say you know what what questions can I ask that make me seem to be interested in this business but not come across as a turbo um yeah, being quite honest that was that was the panic that goes through my mind at that <laughs> stage. So um, I said to him, oh, it's, yeah, it's a bit warm in here, isn't it? Um, what's your electricity bill? And he said, yeah, yeah the, um, the staff members, they just don't perform if, it, if, it's, if it's not warm. And I was like, oh. <laughs> how'd you, anyway, how'd you I, come I, back I got, from I that? Ended up a tour. Well, I ended up getting a tour of the place. Um, I learned that banks don't like to fund the porn studios. Um, there's there there nothing going on on the day, uh, but then there was a, um, a a toy factory upstairs, and you can imagine what kind of toys. It was um it was an interesting experience, and yeah, I didn't win that client. 
And yeah, I just wish that the person who referred me has um, had given me the heads up of <laughs> what I might be stepping into. Uh, so yeah, that that's one of um, one of many stories. But that must have been yeah, again, 14, 15 years ago. Awesome, love that. That was a great story. And so um, I'm, I'm going to. Yeah, ask... I think you haven't had one like that yet, have you? Not about, not that includes porno, no. <laughs> no, but um, I'm now wanting to find um, another story from you. So I want to find out what's what inspirational story you've 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 kind of um, experienced in your life, or what, what's inspired you in the past. What's inspired me? Um, God, again, really good question. So I'm not one of these people who subscribes to idolizing one person you know uh, i know a lot of people will be inspired by rich branson or elon musk or uh, an individual i i tend to get inspired it sounds really cheesy but it, it's true i i tend to get inspired by a collective so for example i've been really inspired by the franchising community over the last year and how they've grouped together to um not just combat covid but thrive through it in really really difficult circumstances let's be honest the banks pulled down the shutters. They were C-bills only. They were focused on that. There was no space for franchise recruitment to be funded. Um, it was quite damaging times. I and mean, when you look at the franchising industry being primarily made up of tuition and food and beverage, it was um, you know, really tricky, tricky, sticky times, I would say. But I was I was really proud to see you know, the BFA, how they outreached the community and expanded their wings, whether you were a member or not. I was proud of how Franchise all stepped up to the plate. You know, I thought that was really admirable across the entirety of the industry, how there was peer-to-peer -peer support and it was really pushing forwards. Um, but taking that one step back, uh, I mentioned what I get inspired by crowds. Ultimately, I'll get inspired by anyone who's, um, who's got the guts to start their own business because we are taught to, you know, from a very early age. I remember getting told things like, um, you know, I mentioned my dad was a locksmith. He would say, Get a job where you know nice nice clean office job where you ain't got to wash your hands at the end of the day that used to be what you would say because <laughs> the end of every day would be like thick with grime and so on on his hands um people yeah you know, people say to their kids get get a job for life get a career for life get a safe nine to five job and actually all of that conditioning makes it so much harder to make that leap so for anyone who's made that leap and jumped into self-employment uh, they're my inspiration and they, they might just be a florist or a baker or a butcher or whatever but they're inspirational because they've gone out and they've gone against the societal norm and started something for themselves and their families great answer thank you for that and um i have to admit the 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 franchising industry and how it all pulled together was part of the reason why i started this podcast because it when when you're in that and you're seeing you know people that perhaps could have just closed in looked after themselves and their business helping each other i thought was fantastic so um that's why i'm keen to to share the some positive um stories anyway from the industry and um i think you're part of that so thank you very much for for sharing your stories with me um i was going to ask for one piece of advice but i think you've given so much advice <laughs> throughout the whole thing that um i don't think we need to go there so carl reader thank you so much for your time today it's been um fantastic um to hear your stories to hear your career and uh, also i feel like i've learned a bit along the way as well so thank you so much for that no ed thank you so much all right take care now bye So there we go. That was my conversation with Carl Reader. Um, absolutely loved it every minute. And I think, as I said at the beginning, I could have asked him questions for a long time. 
and um, still would have found some interesting answers from Carl. So um, to sort of recap and, and pick out a few of my, my highlights, I guess the first thing really is that Carl's story, his background from being a creative person in a, a world that seems to be pretty rigid in chartered accountancy um, he found his niche he found something that he could do within that environment that made him enjoy the work that he was doing so um, meeting clients and developing business ultimately was what drove him on um, to the point where he found the the karate world and, and, and again quite a strange transition there really from accountancy to karate but found that they had uh, some synergies with his his um, work ethos and it was all around personal development and that then quickly led on to him understanding the franchising world and, and taking DNT chartered accountants into uh, be becoming a franchise which you know we hear quite a few different routes into franchising but going from hairdressing to accountancy to karate to um, fr franchising is, is perhaps one of the stranger ones but it was it was quite interesting. The other thing that really stuck out for me was the fact that 68% of people want to be in business for themselves. That's quite a high percentage and it's quite shocking really. I, I, I always had a feeling that there's a lot of people that are frustrated and, and sort of dream of wanting to have their own business but see it in actual numbers like that, that's two thirds of the people that you know want to have their own business. They just either don't have the idea of what to do or don't have uh, the knowledge of how to do it and how easy it could be for themselves and and I guess that's what Cole is talking about in his his book Boss It um, but also in everything that he does it's it's empowering people to take control of their future and start earning for themselves so um, plenty more that I could, um, I could really highlight there as well plenty of advice around franchising what it is um, but yeah I think um, that's probably enough for today. So thank you once again to Carl Reader for um, joining us on The Disenfranchised. Thank you to each and every one of you for listening and um, for all the likes and shares and comments that I get on all the posts. It's really, really appreciated. And um, yeah, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks very much.